What's going on, Asymmetry? So nice to be back in the saddle and to have cooler temperatures that empower us to uh, enjoy our conversations in the bone size sphere. Coming back for round two, Sergio Kwan, uh, I would say bonsai artist extraordinaire from the Northeastern United States. Uh, and I wanted to catch up with Sergio because we started our conversation early on about the handling and his particular ethos around deciduous material. Um, but I've watched his work continue to evolve, expand, and and really multiply in its quality and success of, of his aesthetic attempts and um, breaking down some of his timing seasonally, his thought processes surrounding the bonsai practice, and uh, and just basically digging into Sergio on that next level as as a really influential bonsai practitioner that that is beginning to super establish his name and really carve out uh, a very influential body of work in his bonsai practice in North America. Uh, a great guy, a wonderful conversation, and, and a lot of information that I found to be particularly inspiring and valuable. Uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Sergio Kwan, everybody. Hey, how are you, Ryan? Oh, man. You know, just going through the Zoom dance. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well, man. I'm well. Hey, <laughs> listen, you know, <laughs> this is why I like to work with my hands. You know, this, this technology thing, uh, but thank for... Yeah, I was actually clicking on the uh, uh, Google Meet. Uh, there was uh-huh. there's two links. It was a little confusing. So she said, you guys are supposed to go to the bottom one and click on the Zoom link. Okay. The only reason that I can sympathize with you about that is because yeah. I always did that and I could never get Zoom to work. And then somebody finally tuned me into it. So I feel your pain. I've been there several times yeah. in meetings where I'm the only one that can't figure it out. Uh, but we're good, man. It's good to have you. I, I've oh, been looking forward yeah. to catching up. Yes, absolutely. It's so good to have you know to be back, and uh, so thank you for you know again to be to be invited back for oh, sure. Our pleasure, our pleasure. How How, you been? Oh, yeah. you know we have had. It's hilarious. I've spent in 10 years trying to create more sun at Mariah. And then this year we got way too much sun. So, uh, you know, we had the big heat, heat dome and, and that really, um, boy, that did a lot of damage that just did a lot of damage. So, uh, so we're, you know, moving forward, but, um, but definitely that set us back quite a ways in terms of our normal operations at Mariah. I see. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. It's been, it definitely has been a trying year. I mean, I, I, I've been, Obviously, you know, listening to or seeing the the, the incredible uh, weather you guys have been having, like yeah. like a what is it like a hundred and what six sixteen? Yeah, one hundred seventeen was the record set. That's just yeah, that's that's nuts. Yeah, I mean, here in the Northeast, we've been experiencing also uh, heat waves, but nothing compared to that. Like I think we hit a top of uh, it topped at ninety five. I think. Uh huh. Of maybe 103, 104. That that was you know that was unpleasant, but uh, but you know the actual temperature was about 95. So uh, yeah, I mean when I was hearing that, I was like, oh my god! And of course, I've been kind of following you guys through some days at Mirai and mm-hmm. how you talking about you and Troy are trying to keep up with all the trees, the client trees and stuff like that. So I was I was feeling for you guys for sure. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Is it, it yeah. is is ninety five out of the normal for you then in a summer season? 
Yeah, I would say so. I would say that we we probably top at maybe 90, 92. You know, 95 is just a little bit out of the norm. Mm-hmm. But as I hear with all this climate change and stuff like that, that things are going to get even more um, more intense as far as, uh, look, we just we just got a, a hurricane. Henri uh, just passed by here, you know, uh, started on Saturday, Sunday, a little bit of today went away. Thank God where I am, I'm in the northwest part of, uh, of the state of New Jersey. So we didn't get much of it, but it was one of those rare cases where the actual hurricane went all the way up and landed in Rhode Island, which is very unusual because, you know, usually they, they, they go down in the Caribbean or Florida or something like that. Uh, Georgia, North Carolina, but never up here. So yeah. it's been one of those things. But we, I, I was bracing for it. I was just like, because after Sandy came in, I think, 2011, which absolutely devastated us. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the refineries, refineries at the time were kind of shut down because of the damage that, that they suffered from Sandy. And I remember twice I made a line to get fuel, ga- get, you know, gas, for seven hours. So, mm-hmm. you know, no, I mean, it was just terrible anyway, but uh, yeah, so they're, you know, they're saying that all these, all these, um, you know, uh, weather uh, pattern stuff that is all really changing and, and things are going to become even more dramatic. You know, the fires of course in, you know, in the Pacific Northwest and uh, it's just, you know, it's just terrible. It yeah. really is. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It, when I originally was coming back from Japan, I had planned on uh, being in California in the foothills of the Sierras um, yeah. outside of Sacramento and Placerville where El Dorado bonsai used to be. And one of the big decision makers for me is I did not see California getting cooler in temperature and I did not see there being a more abundant amount of water. Yeah. And so that was the real game changer that kind of pushed me to the Pacific Northwest. And like uh, when I moved here, everybody's like, oh man, there's not going to be any shortage of rain. Uh, you know, and now, now here we are. And it's like, you know, drought conditions and the trees and the landscape are really struggling for se- from several years of sort of uh, subpar winters. And now we're starting to experience, I mean, uh, I wasn't sure if it was last year or the year before Los Angeles hit like 118 or 120 in parts of the valley. And I know there were some bonsai practitioners who really suffered. And, and in particular, the California junipers really, really suffered from that heat. And I just thought at that time when that happened, I just thought, gosh, I cannot fathom that. And then when it happened this year, it was like, well, that is something that I never uh, had prepared for. I was not. I was just not ready. It was an 85-year record of 106. Uh, yeah. I can I can do 106 for two or three days. Like I don't. That's not a problem. 117, 10. Uh, let's see. I, I think it went to 107, 112, and then 117 in three successive days. And and I honestly think it was the nighttime temps that that really uh, did a lot of damage because there was no cooling off. The trees stayed so ramped up. What was the temperature at night? Um, 80, 85, I think like the lows were like 82, but 85, 87, when I got to Mirai at nine o'clock, it was already 95 degrees, um, uh, on, on that day that we hit 117. And here's the crazy thing. Yeah. There were, there were places that were separated by two and three miles 
that when the when the heat dome lifted and the coastal uh, air came in, that two miles away, it was 115, 116 degrees and two miles away, it was less than 80 degrees. Oh. And that just shows you like the extreme of that of that event and that occurrence and that anomaly. But then, you know, the bigger problem was we had this heat event and it takes four to six weeks to really see the damage of a heat event like that. So so we we are still continuing to see things pop up and it's tough to know now. Is it was it heat damage or is this something, you know, as a result of the heat or is this something that is independent of the heat? So like my my bone size skills as far as a horticulturalist this year are being pushed uh, to, 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 to their extreme in terms of being able to make good decisions and manage uh, this garden responsibly. But, uh, but then, you know, we followed up that heat wave with um, two weeks ago. We were back at 106, 108, you know, I mean, we broke and nobody was talking about it because we just hit 117, but we would have once again broken the 85 year record two weeks ago with the heat that we had. And our only saving grace was actually the smoke from the forest fires turned down the intensity of the sun. And I think we only hit oh, 104. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, so as a, as a, almost like a, yeah, a shade cloth in a way. Exactly. Yeah. It was, yeah. It, it cut the yeah. intensity of the sun. And the other thing that happens with forest fire smoke, or at least what has happened here is it raises yeah. the humidity. It raises the humidity to a very high degree under the smoke. I see. Yeah. I, it almost creates almost like a like a greenhouse effect. In exactly. Way, right? Yes, yeah. you're correct. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I I heard that some of the uh, whatever you know the, this the, the tremendous amount of smoke that was kind of rising from the fires were almost were not almost but creating their own weather pattern. Yes. It was just kind of like insane. It just insane. But here, I mean, again, uh, we've we've hit about three or four spots through the summer where we hit a, a, like 94, 95, and it was pretty pretty intense for us here. I mean, I was uh, I'm lucky, I guess, in a way, with you know, due to COVID, uh, I was I've been home, and uh, it made a big difference. By the way, it made a huge difference for me to be constantly at home, mm-hmm. taking care of the trees, watering when when needed. Um, made a huge difference I, I noticed from from all the years that I'm not I'm not home as much mm-hmm. uh, so I was able to kind of cope with that and uh, but yeah so it's been an interesting definitely interesting and trying in some ways trying year um, but in other ways really really positive really good again the fact that I've been uh, been forced to stay home due, due to COVID has really allowed me to kind of really focus uh even more so on the trees that i have and and uh you know observe them very carefully uh catch things on time water them obviously when they need to um so in that sense it's been really really good i mean the garden right now could not be better wow. uh, I, it's one of the better years that i've had honestly and i think it's because simply because i'm i'm just on top of things mm-hmm. i'm constantly day in day out uh, on in the garden, yeah. so, but in that sense, uh, I've enjoyed that part of it for sure. I, yeah. I love being, you know, with the trees and 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 taking care of them and and whatnot. So yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Now, let me ask you: when you get yeah. into the heat of the summer on your on your broadleaves, is there still work that you're doing 
through say like the July August period of time like how how do you handle the, the 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 timing and the cadence for your bonsai work over the summer with the species that you're working with so i you know i have i have quite a bit of uh different varieties of uh you know of uh species of of deciduous you know i have a lot of maples but I do have, you know, I have the uh, the linden that I got from Mirai. I got the elm, uh, hornbeams, and, and beech for sure. Um, I it kind of depends, right? Um, and I, I pretty much follow. I think I do. I don't do anything kind of, you know. I would say, how would you put it? Anything out of out of the pretty much textbook kind of stuff. Uh-huh. I, you know, in the in the spring, um, my maples specifically, because maples are a little bit problematic in the sense, for me anyway, in the sense that I have to be careful because they thicken up very, very quickly. So when they come out in the spring, they flush out. Certainly, I think for anything that is in development, I don't pinch, I don't do any of that stuff, I don't cut back, whatever. I let them just rock out and, and that's it. But for more refined trees, um, I have to be really much on top of it, as as you know, uh, with the pinching, right? Because part of it too is not not so much not only to kind of stop the or, or control right the length of the nodes themselves, but also to make sure that the the, the branches themselves, uh, the tips of them, do not thicken too much. If you kind of let them grow even even slightly bit, they're already kind of thickening it up. That happened in strong areas like the apex and stuff like that. I mean, I actually, sometimes what I've done, and I have a a few maples that I do this, is when they come out, and I don't even wait sometimes for them to harden off, I actually defoliate, take both leaves off of very strong areas to kind of weaken those areas and prevent them to getting too strong and and thicken it up. Uh, Because that would obviously ruin your, your... your uh, winter silhouette, right? You want to keep that kind of fine twigging of, of, of the branches and, uh, and they, they can easily be, be completely, uh, basically ruined if you kind of let them. I, 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 you know, talk to some folks that they say, no, for me, I just kind of let them grow out and then cut back. The problem with that is that you can, in some areas, depending on where where you are with each of the areas, right? But uh, you have to be careful because you you let that go, and before you know it, you have very thick kind of uh, ends to your deciduous. Now that may be something that is an aesthetic that you're looking for, perhaps. For me, I want to get that fine twigging as much as possible, right? So I'm really careful with how much I let some of the strong areas kind of flush out. Um, certainly, I think as the year progresses, right, we get into the summer and um, I would, um, one thing that that almost religiously I have to do is the outer canopy uh, partial defoliation. So I have to kind of uh, make sure that I address that. Uh, obviously, to keep uh, you know air and light kind of flowing through through the interior of the branches. Otherwise, you'll end up with you know, which you see all, all the time, these long branches with you know ramification on the tips, which you definitely do not want that. Right. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? I remember having I have a sharp pygmy 
beautiful, beautiful um, cultivar. And uh, when I first got it, I got it back in 2010 or 11. And when he first flushed out, and again, that at that time, I, I knew even less, right? So it flushed out. It has beautiful kind of chartreuse green coloration. It was It's gorgeous. And this thing filled out completely. Now I was looking at it, I'm like, look at this thing. This is just a picture of health, right? And I was looking at it, I was admiring it for about two or three weeks. And about a month after that came out, after it just initially flushed out, I saw just a, a just tremendous amount of um, uh, leaves from the inside just dropping to the soil level. Mm. To the and I was like, what is going on? And I realized that everything was dying in, inside. Now, Shars Pygmy, as you know, is a Yatsubusa uh, cultivar. It's like, you know, a dwarf, it's considered a dwarf one. So the interesting thing about Sharps is that it's kind of like Shishigashira in a way. I treat it very much like Shishigashira. If you notice, the first pair of, of leaves is very close to the, to the base of the, of the bud. Out right. uh, in regular maples, it kind of extends, and then you have the first pair in in um, in, Shish- in Shishigashira and uh, Sharps. That pair is very close, so I have to kind of religiously got to take that, you know, those two leaves off just to kind of lining up the, uh, you know, ba- basically just thinning out the um, the amount of leaves that it has, and then I go up that that branch you know, taking every other leaf off or, or whatnot. Uh, but but sharps uh, can be very problematic. And I always say to people, because they love it, people love them. I said, I, I only re- I recommend to people to have at least one or at most two, because they are a tremendous amount of work, tremendous mm-hmm. amount of work. I, mean, I, I, you know, I work with my sharps and it's fairly mature piece. I work with it for several days and I only have one and uh, and it's a lot, a lot, just a lot of work to keep it kind of healthy and, and going in the direction that I, that I needed to go to. Interesting. And so do you pinch, do you pinch Shishigashira or do you pinch your sharps or do you not have to because because everything stays so compact? Everything stays very compact, right? So where I do pinch uh, is on the apex, right? It does tend to get a little bit strong. Well, not, not, not a little bit. It, it gets quite strong at times, so I have to manage that. I have to manage that. And I definitely pinch those areas for sure. Um, it, again, interestingly, interestingly, and and something that kind of works in your favor is that I don't have to worry too much about length. If you don't see, if you happen to not catch, uh, you know, a specific shoot or something, and it grows out. You don't have to worry about it because pretty much all the notes are very, very short. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it kind of works, you know, in your favor or, or the tree kind of works with you in, the, in that sense. But as far as thickening, you do really need to kind of manage that. Um, and certainly, of course, as we know, you don't want that apex to get too strong because then, of course, it affects everything underneath that. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're as, you, as you well know, Ryan, Maples, specifically maples, are really, I mean, they're work intensive. I mean, they, the amount of work that, that they require, and of course, as the more refined your tree gets, 
the more work they demand. So it's not like, oh, it's, it's now it's all ramified. I, I can sit back and enjoy. You can, but maybe for a fa- about five minutes and then you got to go back <laughs> and work on it. <laughs> right. It's, it's fun. Yeah, it's have fun just having trees in development. You put them, let them grow, rock out and whatever. You don't have to worry too much because you're thick in the thickening phase and building phase. But anything, you know, more refined, yeah, it, it's, as you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah, I, I, I think... Um I think when I started Mirai, I was like, all I had was raw material. And of course, I felt like the work was this big, these big structural stylings, and it's like so physical and, um, and, and very, very demanding in the initial styling and the initial repotting and the initial aftercare after you initially put it from a grow box or a collected container into the, its first bonsai pot. But what I've learned, you know, 11 years later is when you get all of those things that you set structure on to this point where they've got tons of branches and small needles or small leaves and that, that it is, it is an, uh, an astronomical amount of work to stay on top of it, especially, man, that spring flush and managing that energy and, and, and you can lose in a moment what's taken you so many years to gain. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a monster. It's a monster. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't have this huge collection, but even with, with my collection, it is a, a tremendous amount of work, tremendous amount of work. And it's demanding every year, right? Because they're getting more and more refined, more uh, ramified. Uh, they're demanding more and more uh, of me. Um, and, you know, you're at a point where it's like you don't want to destroy exactly to your point all this work that you've put all these years of work um, because they, they'll, they'll quickly just completely ruin themselves. I mean, you'll see all of a sudden you go, wow, what, what happened here? And you see this big, knobby, thick area that you go, yeah, that's, that's no good. I'm going to have to cut that off and start all over again. Um, you know, so, yeah. How do you, how do you handle fertilization of your really refined trees then? Because there's like mixed thoughts, you know, like talking yeah. to Peter Warren and, and I, and I feel like Peter does tend to aspire towards a little bit of a sparse or more delicate look. And then, you know, you can yeah. talk to Andrew Robson and he has a theory about this. How do you handle it? Yeah, it's interesting because I, um, I, think, I think my method, and, you know, every year I try to improve my techniques, improve my methods, improve my approach to trees and, and you know, hopefully learn from my mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. I think uh, the way I'm do I've been doing it for the past few years is that I don't I hold back I hold back altogether with fertilizing the trees in the spring, except perhaps on trees that need to be you know thicken up, grow whatever. Mm-hmm. I may I definitely hit them uh, you know much more um, much more heavily. Uh, than I would on a refined maple. I would totally hold back on the uh, early sp- until leaves harden off, basically, and then very lightly I may use I use um, biogold uh, uh, fertilizer combined with a little bit of uh, fish emulsion. Uh-huh. Um, so I combine that. I fertilize a little bit after leaves harden off, right, and uh, and then I hold off. A little bit uh, around July, August, not so much, and then I fertilize again in September up until maybe the first week of October or so, and then I just 
I just stop. Um, yeah, but um, but I don't. Uh, I'm trying to not. I used to fertilize a lot more. In the last maybe two or three years, I've been kind of holding back and kind of seeing the differences between, hey, I used to fertilize a lot. These are the results that I got. And, and, and now it is also true, though, that my collection is getting just a little more mature. And now I'm like, I'm, I'm actually kind of afraid now. It's like if I start hitting this thing with fertilizer, I don't want to see this sort of like, you know, explosion of growth. Because like back back to what I was saying before, I'm so, you know, almost obsessed with the fact that I don't want my any areas to thicken more than they need to. Yeah. That's something that I'm on top of it, you know, day in and day out. I mean, the pinching itself, as you know, is like you pinch now. Beach is the same thing. I mean, with beach, I have that, you have a forest on a slab. That thing is comprised, I believe he's got like, mm, I think seven, no, I don't know, something like 14 trees, something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you pinch, right, in the morning, you, I come out in another couple of hours, that one is ready to pinch now. And then two more hours later, that one's ready to pinch. So it's like, is this, I mean, it's no wonder. I mean, sometimes, as you well know, in Japan, they have nurseries dedicated to deciduous trees. And, you know, it's just like around the clock, around the clock in certain times of the year, obviously, not not, not 20, you know, not 365 days of the year, but uh, in certain, you know, certainly in spring. Yeah, it's uh, it's just some just an amount of work is is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens when what happens when the pandemic ends? If it, you know, hopefully I'm assuming it'll end at some point and you go back to work, but you've got past two years you've been home. So here's the interesting thing, Ryan. And I don't know how much I want to get into it, but I'll mention it anyway. Uh, So last November. And so this I'm on an interesting point in my life now. And I'll explain. Uh, Last November, uh, 2020. Um, I, let's just say my company after 25 years, my company and myself just part of ways. Okay. So I'm no longer with my company. Um, you know, they've, they've been great to me. They were great for 25 years, but, uh, it was kind of time for me to, uh, you know, sort of move on. Let's just, let's put it that way. So now, um, basically I've been, I've been really busy with my trees. I've been busy doing Zoom consultations and uh, lectures, and I do once in a while. I do demos and stuff like that. Love doing that. Uh, but now I'm looking for what is my next sort of job, if you will, job opportunity. Not, not you know, aside from bonsai, and uh, and I think that what I like to do ideally, ideally is find. And a lot of people are working, you know, the post-COVID world looks like it's looking very different from the pre-COVID world, which means, meaning that a lot of people, more people are working from home. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are working remotely. Um, so I'm hoping that on my next job, I, I, can, find, I can find something that I can, I can work uh, from home that will allow me to kind of do exactly what I'm doing with, with my garden. So... Um, now if I can't, if I can, I will just go back to having 
basically my wife water the tree in the middle of the day and me take her and say, don't forget to water the trees. Uh, <laughs> and she's done, she's done a fantastic, incredible job. I mean, for years now. Right. But I, I do notice a difference and nothing, nothing against her. It's just that I, I know what the trees need and I've been home now for, oh my gosh, uh, for how long now for about a year and a half. And, uh, so for my trees is being incredible. They're like, dude, don't, don't, don't leave us, that kind of thing. But so it's an interesting point of my life, you know, because I don't, I want to continue forward with my sort of, not sure what you would call it, my bonsai practice, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's become more than, certainly I think it's become more than a hobby. Uh, it's become more like a job. And I mean a job in a good way. Uh, but yeah, so we'll see, we shall see, we shall see. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people look at your work and would say, God, I mean, that, like, who, who, who's making better deciduous trees in North America than Sergio Quan, right? Like you're like, you're, you're crushing it. So it's, um, but, but there is a, there is like a dangerous thing about making your passion, your profession as well. You know, like that, that tends to yeah. walk people into a zone where you actually do bonsai less if you're making a living doing bonsai, which is like a weird, that's absolutely. a weird little world there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm, I'm careful about that. I mean, I did, uh, some traveling, uh, 2019 pre pre-COVID times, I was traveling and I, I enjoyed it, but it was like, hey, this is kind of cool, but it, but I knew that it wasn't because I needed to, I needed that to make a living. Uh, I mean, I, I had talked to Todd one time and he's like, dude, I was, I was on the road for like, I think, and I, I may, I can't really quite remember, but I think I heard him say something like 280 days of the, of the year. Yeah. And I was like, that just like blew my mind because I'm like, I don't know that I can do that. And, and that, that illustrated to me, like what you have to do as a, as a bonsai full-time bonsai professional in order to make a living. Um, so, you know, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, I mean, you bring a great point. So I, I have to be careful with that. I don't want it to get to a point where it's, it's not, not something that I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people ask me, man, how can you like water three, four times a day, sometimes five, day, five, five times a day? I, say, I just enjoy it. That's just, I love it. I love it. It's not for everybody. Not for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, I think, um, at Mariah, for me, the, the abundance of high quality material has always appealed to me, but now, they are getting so many good trees in such a high state of refinement that to get to them all, uh, it's very clear, especially after this year with the heat wave and the watering and what Troy and I have had to do that that we will we will reduce our numbers. Of course, reducing our numbers is is um, you know it's there still still will be quite a few trees here, but we've sort of slowly started to reduce our numbers. And it it really for me bonsai is such an addiction beyond being a profession. It still for me is the, like the it's like the funnest thing I get to do. So that makes yeah. it really hard to control when you can justify everything as a profession. But you know, you hit. It's like uh, for me, where is the outer boundary? Mister Kimura had six apprentices and maintained twelve hundred trees. You know, it's 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 really me and Troy, and we do get the the help of 
of Kaufman and um, and some of our really dedicated students. Todd was just here for a fairly significant period of time. Uh, Sam Tan in San Francisco comes up and helps quite a bit. And like that, that really eases the burden on us. But ultimately, it still comes down to Troy and I with this place. And I, I think the thing to be careful of is not having quantity uh, decrease quality. You know, and that that for me is the threshold where when that starts to happen, and especially with just the watering yeah. time with the increased temperatures this year, we we have had to be very very, um, we've had to be very diligent and intentional about the work that we do on the trees because that work is spilling over into every other waking hour. You know, and that's really really taken its toll on me this year more than anything else was trying to keep up with the trees in addition to the watering load that we had and, and keeping Troy healthy and, you know, not burning him out and all that stuff. So it's such a bonsai as a profession is such a moving target, uh, especially as the climate changes. Just when I felt like we were kind of figuring things out, we get this, this next curveball, And I think this is kind of the new norm, you know, like to be really trying to proactively head off problems, but responding more to the erratic nature of the climate and environment now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm kind of bracing now based on what's happening. And I, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what, what kind of winter am I going to have? Sure. You know, so uh, last winter was terrible. Absolutely terrible. I mean, I had, uh, I had, I can't remember I can't remember them, them, you know, having, you know, the amount of snow that we got last year. I just cannot remember another year that we had had quite as much. I mean, it was a tremendous amount, but uh, and it was, I, I, I guess it was a little bit colder than than the norm. But um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. So you know, but you're you're right. It's becoming kind of like the the new normal in a way. All these uh, crazy weather patterns and and things that you know. But, um, but yeah, so, hmm. yeah. Interesting. So, so I'm going to take it in a different direction because now, and I would imagine in the Northeast, I, I would imagine fall comes on pretty strong. I just, we, the, the heat finally broke in the Pacific Northwest and we've had the past several days have been in like the 70 degree range. It's been like, uh, we even crossed into the 40 degree mark at night, uh, which you know, towards the end of August, we experience, we generally get a heat spell at the beginning of September, but I am seeing my trees make the shift earlier this year to vascular growth. But I was just curious on your trees where you're at, what do you do in the, in the early fall, if anything, in terms of work and, and handling or shaping or wiring or pruning or, you know, like, what does that look like for your, your practice where you're at? Sure. Um, I would say that um, pruning for sure. So it's interesting because my strategy or my approach to to pruning has changed. I used to do wiring and pruning in early spring. Um, My thought behind, the reason behind the pruning in the fall is because I'm thinking, okay, it's going to allow, right, those weaker shoots to kind of sort of – gain strength, if you will, and, and kind of develop in a way through that, through the dormant period. So they will be ready to kind of, I guess, the, the, the tree will have distributed that energy into those weaker shoots by taking out the strong parts. So that kind of, that logic made sense to me. So I've changed that strategy. And the last two, three years, I've been pruning in the fall. Uh, however, 
the wiring, the wiring is something that I never do in the fall. Now, wiring, I can do maybe one or two branches, not a problem. That's, that's okay. But when I'm talking about like heavy wiring, I never do, at least in, in, the, in my area, I never do wiring in the fall. I leave everything to late winter, early spring. I've seen not only with my trees, but with trees, maples and such, particularly I'm talking specifically about the deciduous trees, in my area, around my area in the Northeast, people complaining all the time about like, hey, I wire this tree in the fall and now I'm having massive dieback. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure you may you may know better than me, Ryan. As far as like, what is the uh, what is the the science behind that? My my take on it is that you're breaking plant cells, and the tree is not able because of whatever the winters are very long here is are not able to to kind of uh, repair that damage, and and that may affect the, the branches. I'm not sure exactly, but I do know that um, more often than not, a heavily wired tree you will see, um, uh, you know, quite a bit of dieback on those branches. Yeah, interesting. So you're saying when you're pruning in fall, you're pruning as the leaves are dropping. Is that, what, is that your pr- timing yeah. mechanism? Or, or are you pruning in early fall for any reason? No, I, I let the, the leaves fall. And within, the, you know, maybe within the, the two or three weeks following that leaf fall, I, I prune uh, my trees wherever ne- necessary. Not before. I in this time right now, September, just before the, the trees start turning in, turning color. I don't know that I do. I I don't. I don't do much at all. Mm-hmm. I don't do much at all. I mean, I may prune, clip here or there. Not much, obviously, because I mean, late late pruning. It's not going to be. It's going to lead to to uh, to you know potentially uh, uh, you know growth uh, that that may not be able may not have time to to harden off before the you know the frost comes. But I don't do much right now. Yeah. I'm just enjoying it. I'm, I, my my thing right now is just to keep them keep them keep the leaves in good shape so that I can have hopefully a good fall show like a good fall color um but other than that that's sort of one of my my main focuses uh right now but don't do much in terms of you know the the wiring i may actually know let me think for a second i do actually do a little bit of wiring where necessary in fact i just wire a couple of branches on my birch um that i did but um but not major the problem with me and i know that some folks do wire in the summer with leaves. The problem with me every time that I wire a tree with leaves is that I'm always feeling that I'm guessing where I'm placing my branching. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with that feeling that I'm kind of sort of guessing. Um, I, I think for certain, in certain cases, I may just, uh, you know, if a branch is going up and I know it needs to go down, I may wire that down and, and whatnot, but for like very detailed, very specific uh, sort of um, locating those branches via wire more accurately, definitely for me is, you know, uh, late winter, early spring when I do that kind of work right. for me. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. It makes total sense. I mean, wiring 
wiring a tree and leaf is a, is a challenging endeavor. I mean, this is like the great challenge of broadleaf evergreens, you know, is you're just like, well, this is, I, I guess you can, you could fully defoliate uh, most broadleaf evergreens and, and and have that open branching structure, okay. but that's um you know that's yeah. one of those those nuances. But like um, yeah, wiring when a tree is in leaf is a little bit of shooting in the dark. I I, I find it interesting, and I'll and I'll tell you this, you yeah. know, I've done very big styling of deciduous trees as the leaves are dropping in the fall, to no real ill effect in the Pacific Northwest. But um, <clears throat> but there are certain trees that definitely do not like to have wire on them over the winter, and 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 the one tree that stands out to me is uh, is our Quercus giriana, the Oregon white oak, and I've it's, yeah I've yeah. found over the years that not yeah. even not even the act of wiring in the fall, but leaving the wire on over the winter time, any branch that has wire on it will die, and yes. any branch that is not wired will live. And I, I, I this this for the life of me, and I've heard. You know, there's a lot of wives' tales about, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the wire holds more cold and this damages the tree or something. I don't I don't necessarily believe that to be true, but I cannot explain physiologically well why a branch that would have wire on it would die over the winter time, whereas one that was unwired wouldn't. Yes, that that's very interesting that you say that about the oak because I have similar um, results with I have a great oak, uh, Quercus uh, grisia, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I uh, was collected, I believe, in uh, New Mexico. It's, it's big oak. Anyway, it took a while for it to get used to the, the northwest, the northwest, the northeast. And uh, it's doing great. However, here's the interesting thing about it. And I'm going to try a completely different strategy now. Uh, I've wired the tree in the fall. Same results as the one that you did. Uh, a lot of branches died back. Uh, luckily, it just flushes out. And it, I mean, the, the branches on, and I'm, I'm sure that most oaks are very similar. I mean, a branch in like two years or three years, I mean, they, they thicken up very, very quickly. Right. So, um, you know, and I have gotten like three or four flushes out of that specific oak. Um, but so here's the interesting thing. I've also now said, okay, so the fall does not work. That did not give me any good results. Let me go and as I do for most of my trees or all of my, my deciduous trees, I'm gonna uh, wire my tree in uh, early spring. So I did that. I did that this year. There was a lot of my secondary branches that were wired die back. I would say a good 25% at least of my wiring all die back. I was complete. I mean, it was a bummer because I'm like, ah, so I knew I could regrow that very quickly, but still, you don't want to, you don't want to just ruin everything that, that, that you work for. Right. So now I'm thinking, well, doesn't like fall, doesn't like the early spring or late winter. So now I'm maybe resigned to the fact that I may have to do it when, when I least it's my least favorite time, which is in leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, uh, I'm going to change my, again, my approach for next year. And I'm going to wire that tree in, uh, when, when, it, when, when it's leave, you know, when you leave and hopefully, uh, by the time the fall comes, I'll be able to remove all that wire. It will be completely, uh, wireless in, uh, during the winter. And hopefully that will give me better, better results, but it did not like, uh, either, either, either end of, 
of um, of the dormant period. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I mean, it could it 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 might come down. It might come down to just simply every tree has a different capacity to compartmentalize decay and to stop embolisms. I was um I was climbing. I had the opportunity to climb uh, an old growth redwood. Uh, earlier, about a month ago, I was down in California, and it's it's uh, that, that that's like a that's a that's a really rare opportunity to climb old growth redwoods. It's kind of resigned to like uh, private property if there's old growth that exists or or research teams. Um, but as I was climbing it, one of the people that I was climbing with happened to be a a, a vascular. Um, she had her PhD in vascular conductivity, so she's dealing with xylem, and she was talking about like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of these mechanisms that allow redwoods to grow so tall, leaf morphology changing in the canopy as you get higher so that it can sequester more moisture from um, the accumulation of of the fog and condensation. Um, but she was also talking about the fact that, like, there are times in the year where the the cells that control the movement of water become very fatigued or are not stimulated enough to be able to close themselves off to the formation of an embolism or an oxygen, you know, uh, unwelcome oxygen entry, breaking that that uh, straw, you know, that water straw from the foliage to the root. And I, I, I see you see with Japanese maples when you prune them and they bleed really bad. You see this abundant push of water. But I almost feel like with oaks and with some some potentially other species, and I think about this. Um, maybe with, and I want to talk to you about your birch specifically, but some sp- species that have a, a an effortless capacity to die back, as Zelkova elms of different yeah. varieties, you know, Betula. Like I just wonder, you know, if the those moments in the year, these critical moments, um, where any sort of imposition to the effortless conduction of water starts to become that impediment and and in the case of the oak over winter just having you know a crook in its linear flow of moisture if that is the singular thing that it just can't tolerate over winter time you know so i'm going to fully unwire my giriana cuz it's fully wired right now i'm going to fully unwire it uh, yeah. as the as the leaves drop and yeah. then i'm going to see if it changes the outcome over winter because I don't know what else to do. You know, I'm tired every year of having to regrow what I have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I, at least with my gray oak, uh, it is also known uh, that they have the nasty habit, and, and this happens with other uh, uh, species as well. Uh, once in a while, they'll just drop a branch for no good reason, right. not even wire, nothing, just will drop it. Um, my experience with it thus far, it hasn't been major branches. It has been like secondary branches here and there. Uh, not so much of an issue, but yes, uh, it will drop branches. Uh, Selkova, you mentioned it, the same thing with me. I have a, a small, I have one very small one, um, you know, kind of a classic broom style Selkova. Really well, fairly well developed, but man, every every spring is like, oh man, it's like, what? Why? Why? Mm-hmm. And I wonder. Sometimes I wonder whether this is happening to to other folks or not. But yeah, so Kova for me is the same same thing. Uh, not so much at all, unless of course I do something bad or or wrong with maples. That that's not so much an issue. 
for me with maples, not at all. But uh, but yeah, certain certain trees, yeah, it's like beach. You gotta be careful. Uh, although not not for me it hasn't been so much of a problem with both European and Japanese beach. Um, but man, those are kind of the canaries in my garden for oh, sure. Interesting. Oh man, I mean, not so much European, but the Japanese beach. Man, that that's giving me a run for my money for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that it is a. It's not easy. Yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. Granada, Granada is tough. Are you dealing with a dwarf? Are you de- dealing with a Fuji beach as well, or are you dealing with a pure Granada? I, I I don't know, Ryan. To be honest with you, I, all I can tell you, I'm not sure. I know that it was um, originally when I got that forest, the one that I, the, the only one that I have. I got it from, it used to belong to the Kenneck collection. Mm. Uh, so it was imported from Japan originally. Uh, then it, it, it stayed in the Kenneck collection, kind of they developed it quite a bit for, for several years. And then finally um, I was able to purchase it, et cetera. So um, I'm not sure what variety it is, but I can tell you this, that when I got it, the leaves were about, most of the leaves were maybe two and a half to even three inches. So they were fairly substantial. And now it's like they're small. Mm. And I think part of it, I don't know if it's because it's a variety. I do think it's more attributed to the fact that it, the, the, tree, uh, the trees have ramified even more. Uh, so now you're spreading the energy throughout and, and the leaves are, are really getting very, very small which is wonderful to see. But man, what a beautiful, but tough. It, it will keep you on your toes for sure. European beach for me has been easier. Um, you know, I have a copper um, copper beach, and um, but that, that has been definitely a lot. Like, for example, I would never, and maybe it's because I'm too chicken shit to, to, to try that, but I will never defoliate or, or even, well, I would partially defoliate my, uh, Granada, but I would not, uh, but I have to be careful. Like my European, I can cut. And I usually, sometimes I do that. I leave only maybe a quarter of the leaf all throughout just to promote or incite another flush in back body and no problem. I mean, that thing is just not a problem at all. I would never do that with my with my Cronada. Yeah, Cronada um, is interesting in the sense that with older branches, I almost treated it's almost like a conifer in the sense that if you don't cut back to a viable bud or two to be completely safe, if you cut back, for example, if you cut back a uh, Japanese. Uh, maple, right? And you leave just no buds, just a piece of, of, of branch, most likely you're going to get back budding somewhere along, along that, 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 uh, that piece of branch, right? In the Cronada, forget it. You're, you're almost certain that that branch, if you don't cut back to one or two viable buds, that branch will certainly die back unless you're talking about something like in the apex, a much stronger branch, then you may get backbiting on that piece of, of, of branch that you're leaving. But on all the growth, forget it. So they're, they're, um, they're quite tough to, to ramify as well. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of a challenge for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah, I I I love I love Fagus as a species. I mean, I think beech is just tremendous. And I definitely like Sylvatica a lot in terms of the European because it feels so much stronger uh than the Cranata. But there is sort of that uh constant carrot that dangles in front of you of the finesse of the Cranata, you know, that's so tempting. But I think about yeah, I mean it's beautiful. You can't deny yeah. it. And yeah. and uh, I thought Aaron Packard really, really did something uh, brave and bold when he defoliated the Cronada for the Artisans Cup. Um, and and that tree that tree is still recovering from that. You know, like it's just um, they they are very very delicate. They are. They are. I mean, when I saw that and it was, it's a beautiful tree. Yeah. I saw it and exhibited. I mean, I wasn't at the, uh, at the Artisan's Cup. I, I unfortunately were not, was not able to make it that year, but I did see photographs of it. It's such a beautiful, beautiful tree. But when I saw it, I'm like, oh man, he defoliated the tree for the exhibit. Holy cow. Mm. Um, yeah, I would definitely, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a roll of the dice. I mean, uh, and, and playing with the physiology, I will say this about Aaron and his capacity is, is he did not lose any part of that tree, which is really, which is interesting. Yeah. But it just has been a rebuild of the strength system, right? The energy system of the tree. Um, sure. yeah. So really, really interesting the way that physiology can be played with, but, but speaking of physiology, I mean, I saw one of the things that inspired me to, to want to talk again is seeing how uh, much your birch has developed and, and betula as a species at one time yeah. it, it was it was uh, it was thought to be an impossibility as bonsai and I, I would go to European I would go to the trophy and they would have these big chunky you know white paper bark birch and in the weeping form, and everybody would say, ah, it's, you know, that half those branches are going to die, et cetera, et cetera. But now you're seeing, I mean, Dennis Voitia's birch that he displayed at the national show was just like a mind blower. It's remarkable. It really is a remarkable tree. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when I saw that tree that year, I was like, yeah, if this doesn't win best deciduous or even best tree uh, of the show, I yeah. don't know what well. I mean, it was... I mean, he has, uh, I mean, he's, he's fantastic. Really such a talent, uh, talented guy. He's able, uh, he was able to kind of, you know, the tree, when I looked at it, it just looked like a tree. It didn't look like a bonsai. It just looked like just a beautiful tree in miniature. Yeah. Uh, uh, just, just gorgeous. Just absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, that was a stunner. That was a stunner. And the thing, you know, I, I, some people, some people just have, I have to work, I have to work pretty hard horticulturally, you know, like, uh, but some people just have this, this knack, you know, I mean, Dennis has these cuttings of grapes that he roots and he gets them to produce small leaves and a ton of ramification. I've never seen anybody ramify a grape like Dennis and he's got, and he talks about his maples and he says, I really don't fertilize too much. You know, I kind of do this, I kind of do that and it works out. And I I feel like he, I feel like he has had trees the past uh, three national shows that that potentially could have, or maybe even I would argue should have won best in yeah. show, which is so hard for a broadleaf to win best in show. Unfortunately, Absolutely. the conifers yeah. almost inevitably dominate that, and it's so unfortunate because the work that goes into a broadleaf is extenuous, ex- ex- extensive. 
Yeah. So let me ask you to that point, right? Let me ask you, why do you think that is? Why do you think that that conifers have a better chance of winning a best in show rather than a broadleaf? I'm just always curious about that. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And I I I honestly can't answer that. I don't know. I don't know if it's sort of a um I don't know if it's sort of a subconscious uh, sort of lean towards what is anticipated as a greater degree of durability, potentially the age factor that a lot of the winning conifers have over a broadleaf kind of tends to tickle the senses a little bit or strike that curious fancy that we have about this antiquity in this small little container. Uh, certainly with junipers, I think it's really hard for any tree if you it's sitting next to a well-orchestrated juniper to compete with the visual uh, draw of the contrast and the the dynamic visual appeal. But you know that's a gr- it's a great question, and I think the more I've been in bonsai, the more I recognize that judging as a whole is really a weak point. It's really a weak point of of the bonsai practice, objective judging. Uh, and I'm not saying that I have it in any way down pat, but I've definitely tried to think as hard about judging as I can. How do you, as a judge, calibrate to objectively uh, assess an exhibition? And as I've done that and separated my personal preference, broadleaves have definitely risen to a higher degree of respect and consideration in the judging process. And I think uh, that's deserving because I think they take far more effort over a more prolonged period of time. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it is tough. I'll be, you know, I'm at the Sage's head, uh, you know, through and through. And uh, I I do love, I absolutely do love conifers and I do appreciate them tremendously. So that's not to put anything uh, certainly against them. Um, It is very difficult to compete visually for attention in a show if you have a, really great uh, broadleaf against a really great conifer. That conifer, because of exactly a thing like what you were just pointing out, all that dead wood, all that antiquity, mm-hmm. uh, it design itself, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it is really tough because, I mean, your eye just, poof, just goes. So, I mean, I, I don't think you can, people can even help it. I mean, it's just one of those things that is like, you know, um, and, and the CEOs tend to be a lot more quiet. You know, yeah. they, and in and I will say, I will tell you that uh, as much as I absolutely respect and love the U.S. national, um, you know, I'll be going there this year, and I want to support it and all that stuff. You know, as a deciduous person, I always say, "Oh man, I just kind of wish we had the opportunity to show these trees in winter, yeah, or." you know, in the fall when they can really shine because I mean, you know, in the past I've, I've shown there with my, with my trees in leaf and I'm like, ah, I just, you know, I mean, yeah, I enjoy my trees, my deciduous trees in leaf because you can see how healthy they are, et cetera, et cetera. But I cannot wait until the fall, the, the winter to see all the work that I've done in, in, you know, throughout the year. And, uh, and when I put it there, it just looks like a big mess of 
lettuce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I know, agree. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I mean, and again, you see trees like like Dennis's uh, uh, birch, and then they still somehow, you know, shine through. It, it also helped, I have to say, that if you remember, he showed that tree kind of turning color, which was amazing. Yeah. And already you know, turning yellow, I'm like, damn it. How are <laughs> you doing in September in, my, in September in my area? Everything is like still super green, super green. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, and Bill told me something interesting and said, you know, if you have a great deciduous, but on top of it, you put some color in it, bam, <laughs> you, you, you know, you got something going on in the, at the U.S. So, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, I'm just kind of dissecting this as you asked that question, because I think that's just a really, you know, a question that I think everybody wonders, but nobody's really ever, I haven't, at least I haven't heard it talked about. I know people are, people tend to have their preferences and their prejudices. And I think there is some, some feeling of being shortchanged by broadleaf practitioners when conifers sort of get the nod on a continual basis. But I think the other thing is the container availability and the level of container availability in the unglazed versus the glazed um, genre. It's really, I think there's a lower amount of glazed containers that have the higher degree of execution. And I do think that there tends to be with the glaze and with the sheen of a lot of glazes and with uh, some of the newness of the glazed containers that we're utilizing that you do kind of get this, um, you know, all of those punch words of color and shine and, uh, and, and sort of a homogenous uh, number of shapes that you can use do tend to speak to not only the, the notion of youth, but also of, uh, of inexpensive to a degree, a, a lack of value, if you will, and it's misplaced to be sure. But yeah. Mr. Yeah. Kamura's Mr. Kamura's continual statement of broadleaf trees is, "I don't do broadleaf trees because I can't make any money doing broadleaf trees." You know that was his justification in Japan, and obviously, you have Takayama and Fuyoin and all of these great broadleaf practitioners, and, and, and who knows what the financial status of everybody was? I have no clue. Uh, but for Mr. Kimura, he used to use that, whether it was in defense of, you know, his broadleaf techniques not being as honed or whether it was more a statement of, look, this is the fact of the matter. And so as a as a person feeding themselves doing bonsai, I can't justify focusing on these species. I don't I don't know, you know. Yeah. But it's uh, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And then again, to your point of uh, the, the newness of, of the you know, the pots, sometimes it just gives that image. I mean, it's so important, as you well know, it's so important every single element that you choose for your, for your, to present your image, not only the tree, but in which pot it goes. And, you know, I, I've seen folks with relatively good deciduous, but the, the pot is like this, you know, it looks like it was done, it was made yesterday. And, and, I feel like sometimes it it does tend to they tend to look a little cheap, mm-hmm. you know, the, the presentation in a way, uh, which is to the detriment. I think overall, um, but uh, you know, it, yeah, it's it's all an interesting sort of question, you know. But uh, I I always go into the shows knowing, okay, what 
Conifer is going to win this. Not <laughs> what the sages, um, you know. But you know, it, it's and in Japan, I'm imagining it, it's is similar. It's a similar thing. I mean, I've is very rare, I believe, right? That uh, I think um, I think uh, there was one beach that was actually air layer originally that that won the Kokofu a few years ago. Uh, but that was a rarity. Uh, you know, most times it's uh, conifers that take the big price. Well, it's interesting. The Kokofu, the Kokofu is interesting because I don't. I, I it's if if you're not if you're not uh, informed on how the Kokofu is judged, it's hard as a as an outsider to interpret the Kokofu judging system. But um, sure. the Kokofu has categories uh, of trees. You know, it's got large medium and small and it's got uh broadleaf and it's got uh coniferous um and so you've got your shohin your chuhin and your ogata and uh and inside of that there is the capacity for there to be i believe two if not three show winning trees in each category now the the selection process for the trees to get into the kokufu, the judging for exception into the kokufu, takes place in January at the Green Club. The same judges that judge the exception process do not necessarily the ju- judge the show-winning tree once it's on display because every element, the tree, the pot, the stand, the accent piece, uh, has to be part of the, the judging criteria. And a lot of times the number of prizes per category that can be awarded are not awarded. And on mm. some years in the Kokufu, if there are four, if there are four worthy prize-winning trees in a category, the fact that there are four mean the judges' scores get spread out so much that none of those trees reaches the, the scoring criteria necessary for any one of them to win. And that court category might be void of, of a winning tree. And this is oftentimes what happens with the broadleaf category, that there mm-hmm. are multiple pieces that could be show winning trees, and that factor dilutes the fact that none of them reach the scoring criteria to actually win a Kokufu prize. And so part of the industry around the Kokufu, as a professional trying to get a client's tree that has the merit and the history and the provenance to win the Kokufu, is working with other people who aspire to win the Kokufu to not enter their tree and let this tree go ahead and go in and have less competition or less dilution of judging, right? And that was some of the backdoor politics that would occur in the Kokufu. So typically, there should be a broadleaf Kokufu show winner. There should be a coniferous show winner, right? But because of that, sometimes we don't see the broadleaf based on the dilution of judging scores. And it's, that's really interesting because technically, th- the winning of the Kokufu, there is not one tree that wins it. There is only categories and winners of the category. Wow. Okay. Right. Which makes it really interesting, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't know if they've changed that, but that was the yeah. way that was the way that it occurred uh, when I was an apprentice, and that was the way that I understood it uh, to 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 be occurring. Um, and I know that the kokufu and just Japanese bonsai in general has has had to shift a lot and become a little bit more malleable. That the number of entries is not the same. 
Um, and, and, and so who knows what the, what the judging criteria at this point is, but I know, I know that that was the way it used to be, huh. but I appreciated, I will tell you this, I appreciated and respected, uh, for the judging at the green club, depending on, on how the, the Nippon Bonsai Association, how it's judging, uh, core was because if judges get to be get to have opinions that are too far outside of the general judging corps uh opinions say an outlier uh judge is voting for trees that don't have the same quality and he's giving them very high scores there will be a group consensus that that judge is maybe not seeing things as clearly and although they wouldn't kick him out they might apply pressure that would lead him to believe it's time to step down uh, but what happens more often than not is a judge would pass away and then there isn't an immediate filling of that spot. So there can be up, up to, I believe, between 12 and 15 judges. Uh, but at any one time, depending on, because they, these are all very established, either bonsai professionals or people in the bonsai sphere that understand bonsai well, you might have a flexible number of judges at the Shinsa, at the Green Club, once you get to the, the exhibition, though, and you're choosing the Kokfu show, there are a few other individuals that enter the judging criteria, and some of the judges that would judge the Shinsa at the Green Club no longer cross over to the Kokfu show. And that's where all of a sudden the criteria and the judging numbers change for selecting the show winning tree. And it wow. is a very complex model. It's a very complex model to understand. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so when you think about that, I guess the the thing that I appreciate is that there is a real there is a real high number of opinions being offered and that does lead to um you know depending on depending on w- w- you know what kind of politics play into it it still means that there's a lot of personalities that are contributing and you do tend to start to create a a, a high bar with these people's expectation of what quality is. And I think you do get a little bit more objective decision-making. Very rarely do you see a Kokfu prize where you say, well, that tree doesn't deserve a prize. Right, right. I, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a Kokfu. I've seen trees in the Kokfu that I f- feel like, boy, that's suspect that that's in the Kokfu, but I've never seen a winning tree where I said, that tree's kind of kind of uh, lackluster, you know? Yes. What I thought was kind of... Uh sort of interesting, this just reminded me of, I, I had, um, back in 2015, I saw Taken uh, uh, 10. Uh, I, I attended that, and uh, the interesting thing, as, as you know, is the quality was really, va- it just very vastly between one tree and another, because my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that hobbyists and professionals are are showing at the same time in yep. the same place. so all of a sudden it's like I was looking at some trees and I'm like wow that I don't know but that doesn't look like it should belong in a in a major show like Tak and Ten and all of a sudden you see uh, Mr Kimura's uh, tree uh, you know you know two two or three trees away from it and it's like wow it was interesting and also i thought it was interesting the way it was presented some people were like really a little bit out of the box especially for a japanese show like i saw people like with with photographs framed 
on the back uh, instead of like you, your, you know, your traditional um, scroll. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was like very kind of interesting the way some people were like, really stepping out of the box. Uh, so the, the, it was a it was a mixed box of um, or bag of 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 stuff in that show. I enjoyed it tremendously, but I, I was surprised by some of the some of the exhibits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because the Kokufu Tin is not a juried exhibition, you pay for your seiki or you pay for your spot in the exhibition. And to get uh, uh, a large seki or, or or almost what you know at the Taikon Ten is a is a tokonoma space is very expensive. Uh, and once you pay for that space, to, this is how I understand it. Um, once you pay for that space, you can do whatever you want there. Like I, I, I saw a Taikon Ten where the entire space was filled with cactus. <laughs> you know, which is which was like fantastic. It was like, whoa, what's what the heck is this? You know, and then. Here's the other interesting thing about the Taikon 10 is you choose whether your tree is in the judging or not. Most of most of those trees are not in the judging to win the the prime minister's award, right? But here's the other thing, the judges for the Taikon 10 are not just bonsai professionals. They are bonsai professionals, they are poets, they are uh, writers, they are painters, they are sculptors. So you have this uh, greater diversity of input from other art forms being added to the judging process, which I think makes uh, the Taikon Ten very, very colorful as an exhibition as a whole. You have some some person loading their exhibition space up with cactus, even though it's a bonsai display. You got some framed picture of you know who knows what behind some tree made by who knows who, and like it keeps it lively, you know, but uh, it, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think colorful is the right, I think adjective for, for the Taikon 10 for sure. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, again, I wasn't, wasn't sure what I was expecting. Um, uh, but I have never been, I've never been fortunate enough to see the, the, uh, Coco Fu, uh, but I did see the Taikon 10 and I thought it was very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 And that's where I think, I just feel like there is a standard that was set in Japan of judging. It doesn't mean, that the standards in Europe or the United States or anywhere else need to abide by the same standards because I do think, sure. And going back to 2012 and watching uh, Mr. Mitsuya critique a flat top bald cypress, and he said, This is a formal upright tree. This is not how you handle these branches. These all need to be wired down and cut and regrown. And it was like, Wow, okay, there's a, there's a knowledge base to be able to judge bonsai in a given. Uh, region. You know, I went to South Africa and everything looked like a flat top acacia. Even black pine were handled in that fashion because that's what they're, that's what they had. That's what the environment was given. You know, you like, you have to interpret these things as a judge and come out on top. Going to Europe and not seeing an olive of just superior quality, I might be drawn to an olive, but it's not a good olive in the sphere of European bonsai olive, right? So, like, that whole calibration system, etc., is a real skill set, and it's a real uh, it's a real challenging thing to yeah. get objective judging. But I think it's of par- paramount importance for a show to have objective judging. Otherwise, you're not going to get people's best trees, and you're not going to see the pinnacle of the art form unless Agreed. you have taken that into consideration. Because it's invalidating of the efforts of somebody who has done something phenomenal. You know, absolutely. absolutely. And I think that's where Dennis's tree, I think, was 
was a real strong candidate to be the show winning tree at the national, wow. like for, for, for the birch to be in color with that kind of ramification and that kind of development. It's like, go, go, go find another one in the world. Oh yeah. Good luck with that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that brings yeah. me back to birch because I see yeah. you having, you're having success with birch and I want to know well, about it. Sure. So, so here's the thing. Um, and, 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 you know, I'll be, I'll be completely, you know, transparent with that. That birch is actually very, very new in my garden. I, I got that birch last, I think, October or November from a very talented guy by the name of Eric Schrader uh, out in the East Bay area in San Francisco. Sure. Which I'm sure, uh, yeah, you know him. Uh, and he was gracious enough to agree to sell it to me. Uh, I've been looking for a good birch forever because they're not very, as you know, they're not very common. And uh, that was in, in my list of must-haves. And uh, when I saw him, I'm like, dude, uh, and, you know, he, he agreed to sell it to me. So, again, thank you to Eric for that. Um, but I got to tell you, uh, I, you know, so the tree got into my garden, which, by the way, gave me a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, my, uh, you know, my, my, my heart kind of stopped for that because he was lost <laughs> for like 11 days, uh, more or less. And uh, luckily it was through the winter, so nothing happened to the tree, but I was like, okay, this tree is lost. And maybe when I find it, it's going to be dead. But luckily when I opened the box, all the, all the, all the branches were flexible and all that. So it, all, it looked good. So, um, but he's done tremendously well. In, in my garden and uh, I, maybe Eric had the same, I don't know, same success. It is a, it is a type, I think it's a subspecies, that specific birch that I got of a, um, the silver birch, which is the, the one that Dennis has, I believe. And um, so I would imagine that even if it's a subspecies, it would kind of uh, have a very similar behavior to, to a silver birch. But I am on the seventh uh, growth, growth spurt with that tree, seventh. I clip it and it grows. I clip it and it grows. I clip, and I said, you know, with Japanese maples, you get maybe two flushes, maybe a third, perhaps. This one has seven seven and possibly if i if i were to you know cut it back now it'll probably i mean which i'm not it'll probably just put another one but and and they're they're fairly strong so i'm i'm all, almost kind of like saying how do i stop this thing from growing because again back to my earlier point about like i don't want some of those branches to thicken more than they than they have certainly the, those tertiary branches. I don't want them to thicken more than than they are already. Um, so I've been fertilizing not heavily, just normally, just like I do with any other tree. Um, I have read, read, and again, this is just based on what I'm I'm reading. Is that uh, they should be uh, for best sort of results, you should wire them in leaf in the summer time, not in winter. I am going to avoid that like the plague because we know, right, we're talking about the difficulty of growing birch well. And I was joking with a friend of mine the other day. I said, you know, it's got a ton of growth. I can't wait to see this in winter, but maybe now through the winter time, it's going to decide I'm going to drop everything off. Right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. So, 
I don't want to try it. I, I'm, I'm kind of in that phase where I'm studying the tree. I'm observing the tree very carefully. It is a strong grower, fantastic. And I, I repotted it. I mean, Eric had it in a training kind of um, training and glaze pot that was about five inches deep, five or six inches. It was pretty deep. And I put it on a very shallow glaze pot. I was actually very aggressive uh, with my... Um, in the repotting, uh, when I repotted it, I was fairly aggressive with it. And um, and it just, you know, what was interesting is that it put, uh, when the tree flushed out, it put two leaves, two tiny leaves. And um, it, it really worried me because the center growth, you know, I'm used to seeing the center growth on hornbeams, maples and stuff like that, just pushing like beech, just pushes out, you see that center extending, et cetera, right? Here, no, he put the two leaves and there was no center, just nothing. And I said, uh-oh, I said to myself, I may have gone a little bit too aggressive with my, with my repotting. And all of a sudden, it just, I started seeing that center just extend and he just exploded. And I, I, again, I'm on the seventh um, uh, growth spurt. I've been waiting and I, I've listened to Dennis, how he treats his, his birch, so I tried to kind of mimic a little bit what he's doing with his birch. I believe he says he lets them grow like three, four leaves, I believe, and then he cuts it back. I've been doing kind of similar thing with, with that birch. Again, thus far, I have to say, phenomenal um, development on the tree. We, will, we shall see, uh, maybe ask me the question, Ryan, next spring when it goes through the winter, and uh, hopefully I'm anticipating out of all that growth, I'm anticipating already a percentage of that is going to probably die back. Mm. That just much like happens with uh, Selkova and like we talked about with the oak. Uh, so I'm expecting a certain percentage of it to die back. That's, that's apparently part of the genetics of that particular uh, species. But uh, but hopefully it's only like a, maybe a 10%, not like a 50%. So we, we shall see, but I'm not trying, I'm not trying to get cute with it. I'm not saying, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not even going to, I don't even think I'm going to attempt to wire it in, in, uh, in early spring or, or late winter. I think I am going to be very, very, uh, be, be careful basically with it. Um, I like to, I like to think I can probably, style of training just by clip and grow. I, I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, and I think I mentioned this to you in my, 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 the other podcast that I did with you is that I'm a big believer on setting the character um, of a deciduous tree, let alone a conifer. That's a separate thing, but on, on a deciduous with wire. Mm-hmm. I, you get the best, I believe the best product, the best tree out of a combination of wiring and then letting as as that design matures, you kind of ease up uh, on the wiring and you kind of let the tree kind of take over and then you can go to the clip and grow method. So I get that. Um, But initially in the first first round, second round, to kind of set that tree in motion and forward that character, definitely for me, wiring all, all the way. Um, so I like to do that with the birch. There's things that I like to kind of sort of work out a little bit more with, with that, with that tree, but I got to be really careful, especially knowing how, how finicky they can be. Mm-hmm. But that's far is just, you know, so 
That's yeah. my that's my experience with birch too. To be honest with you, I've got some yeah. river birch that Randy collected, which are 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 really nasty in terms of dying back. And 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 when I was in um, Rotterdam with uh, Tunis Young Klein, uh, he had some tamarisk that were really highly ramified. He had some some birch and elm and zelkova. He was dealing with a lot of the specialty cultivars of Japanese maple, Sagan and. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the other one that, uh, that, uh, anyways, it, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and he was talking about the nuances of each of these and he just said, ah, the water loving broadleafs, you've got to prune them. You've got to prune them and prune them and prune them. And I talked to Danny Oos at the Ginkgo Center, yeah. uh, cause he's had tamarisk and he's had some of these outlier species for a long time. And he just said, you just got to keep pruning. The tissue's got to stay fresh. It's got to stay new. It's got to stay water conductive, but for my river birch that I've handled here, and I've had a, a handful of them for six years now, uh, I let them flush out in the spring. I partially defoliate and prune back the growth, and that's when I wire them. And I've had tremendous success, and I've wired them down to the smallest twig um, and had a lot of success at that moment. Now, whether or not I could get away with it before they flush uh, I've never really tried because I was like you, very hesitant to push the yeah. envelope in the fall or the early spring when they're not in leaf. But when I had them moving water and I had the energy system in the tree built up and metabolizing, I've had great success with wiring. So I don't pass that on as anything other than, hey, Sergio, yeah. this is my experience. Uh, sure. But but these figuring these things out. Uh, about these species that are super water loving and do tend to die back. This has been one of the great. This has one been one of the great modern experiments of bonsai in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like to kind of, I like to figure that out. Um, and, and again, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know why. Uh, like the oak, going back to the oak, I don't. I mean, I was just scratching my head. I, I, you know, in fact, I waited for that oak to kind of lightly push, start pushing. That means it was just kind of like you know, start moving resources up. I said, this tree is, you know, ready to to you know to flush out. It's it's it strong, and I said, hmm, let me let me wire, bam, and and it just. Did not, did not, um, I did not get good results out of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I left me scratching my head for sure. And I'm like, I'm not going to try that again. I'm going to change my timing, right? And I'm going to probably do something like maybe in the summer um, and, and see how that goes. With the birch, uh, it's great to hear that you're having success with it. Uh, so again, have you having had that for? A few winters, have you noticed any any significant dieback or percentage of dieback? No, on on birch. No, you have no, a- no, and it's highly ram. The, the 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 one that I've focused my greatest attention on is highly ramified, uh, and it's a it's a small little compact tree. Yeah. But but I protect, yeah. you know. And I I remember having a conversation with David Benevente, who imports a lot of nice trees from Japan, but also has a lot of really beautiful European species that he's created himself, and he used to. Prior to Mario Comstal was the curator of the Alcobendez Museum for Luis Vallejo. So David, you know, is is a real talent in Europe. And um, he made a comment to me one time at the trophy early on in the, you know, 2012-13 range. And he said, you know, the more refined a tree gets, you almost have to greenhouse it. And I just thought about that for a while. And as I've progressed in bonsai and you get these fine twigs on deciduous, they just don't have the cold tolerance. Yeah. And and I think I I've always um, 
overwintered my birch in the greenhouse, um, as as have I rolled the dice and experimented with zelkovas and elms and other things. Um, and I and, and I do tend to find that the trees that I overwinter in the greenhouse, although I have to be careful of them not warming up too fast, mm-hmm. I do tend to suffer less branch loss when they get to that level of refinement. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, my understanding too is that uh, Dennis is uh, birch. He doesn't experience that much dieback or, or any at all. I'm not. I'm not sure. But from what my from what I heard, is that uh, similar similar kind of experience to what you have. Mm-hmm. But that's good to know because it's it's very disheartening to to sort of work on such a beloved species and know that there is that 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 you know that sort of detriment or detriment to, or demerit, if you will, to that where it's like, oh, I'm going to work on this. It's going to grow, but now it's just going to drop a percentage of the branches. It's just very demoralizing yeah. uh, to, to know that. But uh, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm sort of crossing my fingers with it. Thus far, phenomenal development and growth. I cannot ask for anything more on that tree. Uh, so we'll see how in the Northeast, in my region, how it goes through the through the winter. Needless to say, it's going to be protected. No, no question about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we shall see. But I'm not. I'm going to be very very careful how. Uh, how I approach this tree uh, as far as like the wiring and all that stuff. And I'm going to observe it very, very carefully uh, and, and see how that, um, how that, that does. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a really nice tree uh, that Eric, I mean, uh, my understanding is that Eric grew it from like a cutting or something like that. And, you know, all the credit goes to him. I mean, uh, people ask me about it. And I'm like, I did not do much at all, except I did put it in a nice pot and it looks great in that pot. And, uh, but, uh, so yeah. 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 I think Eric Schrader, you know, when you talk about, there's like, um, obviously sort of the original bonsai practitioners, uh, in North America and generations that built on top of that. And I, I look at Suthin, I look at Jim Grimmel. Um, I look at uh, Nick Lenz. You, you have these people that were tree creators uh, I feel like Eric Schrader, Jonas Dupuis, these guys that are are really concentrating their efforts. I believe they. I don't know for a fact. But I believe they both studied with Boone um, to a degree. But like the material that Eric Schrader is growing right now, m- m- you know, might be might be some of the better material yeah. we've ever seen I, cultivated as bonsai uh, in in North America. Agree. Like, agree. He is a he is talented and yeah. he's just starting yeah. to be known. Um, yeah. I know him and Jonas are working on, on something kind of special uh, as far as an exhibition is concerned. And I'm super excited yeah. to see what that looks like. But, uh, but in addition, yeah, Eric, Eric is a talented individual and he is cultivating some really high level stuff. Yeah. I mean, it does take a special kind of uh, skill level and, and talent uh, to grow some of this stuff. I mean, he's grown this stuff from, from like, cuttings and yeah. uh, through uh, many years. So again, I, I, I know a couple of other folks that, that, that have done that. Um, and uh, I, I admire that because I'll be honest with you. I don't, um, I mean, I have, I have stuff in my grow our area that I'm growing for, for eventually for bonsai, but most of the stuff that I do is I, I get a good material pretty much already fairly well I should say not not necessarily all developed, but like fairly old stuff that I like to kind of 
develop further and refine. But it really takes um, a special talent and and uh, and patience to kind of grow. I mean, this little thing. I mean, Bill Valvanis himself. I mean, yeah, he knows Jimenez, and he the dude has been growing this for like fifty years. I'm like, and if you see this thing, I would have told Bill back in the day, yeah, there's no way this is gonna grow into anything. And <laughs> he goes, oh really? So I mean, incredible, really incredible. So I, my hat is to those folks that really have the patience and the vision to kind of, you know, move that, move that material forward in the way they do. Uh, it really does take a, a special kind of, kind of talent for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would have, um, personally, I don't have the, I have patience for certain things, but not sure that I would have the patience for that. It's like a little cutting and yeah, I'm, I'm thinking 25, 30 years about <laughs> I don't think you, you uh, I'm the guy for you. <laughs> I, I feel, I, so I'm of, I'm exactly of a similar mind to you. Like that's just not where I'm going to get down in bonsai. Yeah. But no. I'm glad you brought up Bill Valvanis because he yeah. is one, you know, and Spencer uh, in the Pacific Northwest was one. And uh, Dennis, Dennis Voitia. I mean, he's, he's grown almost all of his trees himself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. This is, this is craziness in my mind. I, I mean, crazy, crazy cool. Yeah. But it's cra- It's craziness it, to see what somebody can do over the course of time. It's amazing. Totally. Absolutely. It really is like, it blows my mind when I see, oh yeah, I grew that from, I mean, when I, when I asked Gary about the birch, he goes, oh yeah, I grew that from a cutting. I'm like, what? I'm like, because it looks, I mean, already it's all plated on the base of it. And then you have the white bark, the younger parts of it. Like it's beautiful contrast. And, um, I think he's grow- I think he's only like 15, 18 years old, I believe. Maybe some, maybe 20. But I'm like, really? Because you look at the tree and you go, yeah, that looks it looks way older than like 15, 20 years old. It just anyway, but um, but yeah, so yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Now, are you continuing to expand your coniferous work? I know uh, last time you said, hey, listen, yeah. I've been kind of shoehorned into this broadleaf guy, but I like conifers too. Is this something you're, you're, you're pushing more or have you engaged with that more this year? Hey, you got a good memory. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I'm impressed. I did say <laughs> that. I did say that. And yes, the answer is yes. I, I'm actually writing an article now for Owen. Uh, Owen Reich uh, on Thuja. Um, I have a couple of them that are, are really good, good trees. And um, for next year, I do have at least one uh, major project, which is a, a piece of stone from uh, John Kulik, uh, Kulik from, mm-hmm. uh, from Mirai about three years ago, four years ago. And it's been sitting there. It's, it's outside in a pot not doing anything, just, just being a stone. Right. And every year it's like, yeah, but so it was supposed to, I was supposed to, to do a, um, a Thuja kind of composition with that rock this past spring. It was just not the year to, for that to happen. I had so much repotting to do with my trees that, uh, that forget it. It was just impossible for me to get to it. So I'm hoping that next spring I can do that. I have about five or six uh, collected thujas that are really beautiful. They're small, and I'm going to kind of hopefully do a composition. So, yes, 
more conifers, yeah, I don't know that I would be, um, you know, moving really uh, so aggressively with the conifer, even though I love them. I'm going to also style, I have a large Engelman spruce that I want to style kind of with multiple uh, APCs and stuff. I'm excited about that material. Uh, so yeah, so I have a few projects, but, uh, but the deciduous model, um, really, you know, it's got, it's got my more, most of my attention. Mm. Um, I want to explore, you know, and yeah, to the degree with the conifer, but I want to explore, you know, I see you, I see Mirai, I see some of the folks doing some really exciting stuff with, with, uh, with conifers, right? Really kind of interesting and interesting. I see interesting forms that, that I haven't seen before. And, uh, I kind of want to do, I want to explore a little more of the deciduous forms. What else is there other than, you know, I mean, I have got a lot of, uh, you know, informal uprights, nothing wrong with that, right? They're, you know, they're beautiful. And if you're a good artist, you should be able to really make something beautiful out of that for sure. But um, but I, I'm interested in seeing what else is there as far as like what other forms. One of the things that I want to explore, and I have a Shishigashira forest that I want to plant in a, in a slab next spring, is the actual concept idea of space, right? We all all play with with uh, with space. We do in order to kind of create the illusion of like a tree in the far distance and you have the one in the foreground, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to push that to, to the way I kind of uh, draw a parallel with, or, or, or I equate it to is like, if you've ever been to a, uh, a, a, a play, right? The set design itself uh, sometimes is only about 10 feet, 15 feet deep. And they build all these set designs in a way that is got forced perspective and giving you the sense that it's going down about four or five blocks. It's, it's amazing how the illusion and how they play with your, your sense of, of perception of, of, of space. So I, wanna, I want to try to explore within a very, obviously, very limited uh, space, right? Because we only usually play with maybe, I don't know, 14 inches, 18 inches deep, 20 inches, whatever. I want to explore that to, to, in a way that, um, to a greater degree. I'm not sure if, if, how to explain it, but I want to, I want to, I want to, drive that idea of the space to, to, uh, to a greater limit and see what I get from that. Um, so anyway, ideas of space for sure, but I also want to explore things like, hey, you know, um, what other ideas? Like I, I, I saw um, a Beth Moon, um, I'm not sure if you know her, uh, her photographs, uh, I believe that's her name. I saw one of her photographs that she takes of she takes all these beautiful photographs of ancient trees, and a lot of them I believe they're they're taken in Africa, and one of them I saw where the tree was super super old and all these branches had just broken going down and all of a sudden all these what was secondary tertiary branches had grown 
into new trunks. So he's got this sort of really strange uh, feeling that goes up, then goes down, and then everything goes up again. And mm. it's like, wow. I mean, there's so many, the, the, the amount of forms and, and, and visual sort of inspiration that, and you know this well because you're always in the mountains and whatnot, and I'm sure that that's exactly what you do, is, is to kind of push myself to other venues, not other venues, but other forms of expressing uh, those, those, those forms inspired by nature with deciduous trees. Yeah. Sorry, so it's a little bit tough to explain because, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is kind of abstract in a way and it's sometimes a little difficult, at least for me, to kind of verbalize it. But I kind of want to kind of push push in, in certain ways or certain directions and see what I get out of that. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Interesting. That's so interesting. I. I love Beth Moon's work. I actually uh, had the had the pleasure of meeting her a few oh, weeks really? ago. Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to go to her home and studio and uh, see what she's working on right now, um, and see a lot of prints that that maybe haven't made uh, the public eye. But yeah, she's she is really quite a profound uh, photographer, and the feet, the things that she goes through to get those images would, I mean, it, it'll, it would boggle your mind. I mean, you're talking about going to the far extents of the earth in places that are rarely traveled, in places that are questionably uh, safe to be in, in places where food and modern luxuries uh, definitively don't exist, and she is just a an absolute... Um, dedicated individual to get that to, to 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 photograph those trees in a way that she feels represents them and it's pretty inspiring to talk to her about that um but her book ancient trees is one of yes. several books several books she did a nighttime series um she did she she has focused on different subject matter uh currently she's doing an exhibition with uh with oak seedlings which is really this like beautiful uh enlarged seedling as the root and the radical and the cotyledons come out of it and just this like real in-depth dive into the form of the seed and its germination process and um yeah it's pretty it was pretty inspiring i'm super stoked that you brought her name up though because i think as far as a bonsai inspiration the form she captures and, and 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 here's the thing talking to beth in the limited amount that i've spoken with her um I was talking to her about sort of my ancient tree fascinations and we were like exchanging our exchanging our ideas and she's coming up with these places on earth and these species of trees that I've never heard of and I've never read about and and I'm saying how are you finding these things and she's just saying you know talk to people you read a book you a piece of literature you get this idea you search out this place this location this culture this tribe this island this uh you know this this uh happening this uh and and suddenly she's finding these species of trees that nobody's ever seen. I mean, the baobabs are predictable. The bristle cones are predictable, but sure. to, to find, you know, these places in the far flung regions of the world where people don't really travel or exist, yeah. that's really where Beth Moon has like taken the quest for ancient trees to a whole new level. It's incredible. It's really, it's incredible. The quality of her photography, not only, and the quality of the images, not to mention how inspiring it is to, you know, folks like, us into that language of trees and 
I mean, I was looking at some of the photographs and that one in particular was like, wow, you know, so I'm like, okay, uh, so what happens? You know, the, the thing is, the thing that I find <clears throat> difficult, well, bonsai is difficult in many, many ways, right? But one of the things that I find very difficult, and I always draw a parallel to my background as a painter, as a draftsman, is that if I have an idea, um, I can just grab some paints and brushes and I paint it and that's it. You're done and, and you know, no matter what you think of, you paint it and that's it. And you can make it happen. But with bonsai, you know, I have, I have these ideas but I gotta find the tree. I gotta find. I mean, I'm I'm getting more and more into like stones and and rocks and rock plantings. I love that. I'm loving what you're doing with with some of those plantings, man. It's like just oh. mind blowing. Um, very inspiring. Very inspiring. So, but you gotta be able to find it, and you gotta be able to afford it. And it's like ah, you know, it's a it's a little bit of a. It, it's hard. It's hard. But. Um, but once you find it, I mean, it just, and you pull those elements together and it works, it's like magic. I mean, I had, um, I guess, uh, just a recent example. I had a, a, a Kiyohime maple that I was been growing in my in my garden for a while. It was just kind of like sitting there and I, um, I it actually was originally a very good shohin at one point and I made the mistake years ago of putting, um, it was flushing out very early. Kiyohime tends to have that nasty habit of flushing out early. And when I mean early, it's like mid-February. And it's like, hey, I'm awake. And you go, no, 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 you got to go back to sleep. So I thought I had the brilliant idea. I said, let me put it in the refrigerator so that I can stall the, uh, the uh, you know, the, 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 the push. Right. Uh, what happened was that the refrigerator sucked all the humidity out of the tree. Right. Big mistake, right? So I learned the hard way. So when I looked at the tree, like a week later, I'm like, hmm, these, these buds are not supposed to be that red. It, they turned kind of like a dark red. And, and that was, I knew that was trouble. So all to say that I lost the entire tree except for the main branch. And it, it was tiny, it was small. So I say, well, there's not much I can do with this. I was ready to throw it out. I'm like, ah, let me let me turn it into like a like a cascade kind of thing. So it just sat there in a small pot for a while. It grew, and I'm like, yeah, you know, it's just like. And then I saw a stone, uh, uh, Ying stone, Chinese, uh, last year um, from actually, um, my gosh, the his name. Um, oh, jeez. Now his name escapes. I'm, I'm, uh, anyway, so um, is it Andrew? No. Oh my gosh, the guy in Japan. Uh, I don't know why I'm, I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, he oh, he's American from Tree. Uh, from Tree, Adam. Yeah, are you talking about Adam? Adam Jones. Uh, sorry, I think mm-hmm. Andrew. Adam Jones. I, I I talk to him all the time. I cannot believe I cannot believe that I forget his name. Jeez. That's what a podcast does. That's what a podcast does to you, Sergio. Jesus. <laughs> anyway, but uh, so um, Adam, you know, had a had a had this beautiful Chinese stone. I bought it, and I said the the combination of that stone with that tree and the pot that I bought was just to, for me. It was just kind of like a magic combination. It just was came all together 
Um, sometimes a little bit of luck, right? But, um, but I was so happy because it really, in my opinion, though, it, it really elevated what was just like an average little tree into something a little more, definitely a little more interesting. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, when it works, it's just kind of like magic. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think, I believe I've seen, have you posted pictures of that piece by chance? Yeah, it was, it was in Instagram earlier, I think, yeah. uh, or like, a I don't know, was it like, a uh, like two or three months ago, it was in spring. And I just recently, I think I posted another one in full leaf. And uh, yeah, I was really happy with, with the results of that. So I, I keep, you know, with the folks that I work with, he says, sometimes don't give up. Sometimes it's just with a little bit of imagination, a little bit of creativity. And yes, finding the, the sort of the right part or the right stone and putting those together, man, you can really, you can really elevate the, the quality of, of what was a kind of a average boring tree uh, to, to kind of that next level. Uh, so yeah, inspired man. I love talking to you, Sergio. This is number two for us, and I could keep going. I, I you know, everything you say, I have more and more questions. I've immediately, I'm thinking, okay, what does it look like to maintain deciduous on stone? You know, over the course of time, wow. and and uh, you know, wow. these these altered forms of of the deciduous model or the coniferous model. I mean, the multiple APC model obviously has uh, yeah. part, part of going down to the redwoods for me this time was I've gotten feedback from people saying, Hey, you know, you are styling your redwoods with multiple apices. They don't really do that. They only, they only have one or two branches that will deviate. And I thought, gosh, I, I, I kind of based this whole idea of the multiple apice on the redwood on redwoods that I'd seen back in 2012. Did I get it wrong? Uh, and I even had a gentleman whose friend was researching like the common structure of redwood and doing these plot diagrams of macro size redwood send me these charts of these growth habits. And I was like, shoot, maybe I did miss it. So so I went and I looked at, at, at five of the groves of old growth redwoods on my way down to climb this redwood. And... Um, you know, one thing that that being into bonsai does for us is, is it really hones our uh, capacity to observe. And um, in one of the groves, yeah, in one of the groves, there was a definitive propensity in the grove for any branch that originated from the trunk to grow up and any branch that originated from an upward growing branch to grow down. And that was the basis of my redwood form. Um, and as I kind of walked through all the groves and sort of calibrated to each of the conditions, which vary as you move south in terms of temperature, rainfall, inland versus coastal orientation, found the sweet spot for the oldest redwoods and the biggest redwoods, which is also where Steve Sillett did most of his research on on the largest redwoods, what was where this multiple apice form was predominant. And if you were in any other grove of redwood, you would see that very rarely, if ever, as a habit of, uh, of the redwood growth habit. And so you start to recognize the narrative arc of, of these trees over the course of time. And, and some of this, some of, some of these ideas, just like sort of Beth Moon's notions of like a conversation, a mention of something starts her process. Dan Robinson, when, when the Pacific Bonsai Museum did the Natives exhibition, uh, we had a, there was a panel discussion that Aaron organized and we filmed it and it's on Mariah Live now. And Dan Robinson came an hour and a half 
uh, late because he had just had a heart attack and he showed up and and it was literally like Dan Robinson came in and this whole different energy came with him and it was just really something to behold. But he broke down uh, what was defined what defined ancient from a characteristic for for forestry people and and that started that just sent me off on a different trajectory that conversation and the way that Dan spoke about ancient as a as a visual diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and I think we are building our our vernacular and our vocabulary in bonsai of the narrative arc of each each tree's life, the species and how it transcends sure. time over over its growth habit. It's really nice to hear you focusing on that and finding opportunity in that because I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and you know we we are all products of our our own environment, or we should be right. I mean, uh, I used to. Um, I used to look at a lot of uh, Japanese books when I started with bonsai and stuff like that. But more and more, I've been inspired by by my surroundings, and perhaps this is why I'm kind of uh, more leaning towards. I lean heavily, more heavily into the deciduous. Is because I'm surrounded by forests of deciduous trees, oaks and oh. and stuff like that. You, on the other hand, you have those beautiful. I mean. Uh, with with conifers and stuff like that, and these rocky areas that are like um, absolutely amazing, that completely alien to the to the East Coast. Um, but you know, I, I try to like one of the things that um, that I that I that I noticed a while back was that the fact that some of these procedures, I mean, we're trained right to kind of like anything that grows down, you got to cut it, cut it off, or you got to wire it up, but. If you if we notice right, some of those very delicate branches for unknown reasons, they just kind of hang down while everything else just sort of goes up and out and whatnot. But some of them gives kind of, and I, I I've been noticing that and I love that. I love that because um, it gives the tree some kind of very natural and and relaxed feeling about it. I have one maple. Where and I, I believe you and I talked about it in the last podcast. Where is you know I, I attempted to uh, graft a second trunk, etc. Cetera, et cetera, that all of a sudden by itself I saw one branch, and I and I, I cannot explain to you why. And, and this is a, a an old you know lignified branch. It's very thin, but it just started growing down, and I'm like that is really interesting. But I, I thought to myself. If you go by the quote unquote rules or whatever, we should cut that off. But looking at it and studying that tree, it really gave it a special kind of quality and nuance to it that I said, if I cut that branch, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take away something out, out, of, out of that character that by itself, it just decided to turn, sort of create. So what I did was I started mimicking uh, that, that growth, that particular sort of direction of that branch in, in a couple of other areas just to kind of tie the, the, the sort of the theme, the, the design th- thematic of, of, of the tree. Um, but I, I love to see, you know, when that happens in nature where you have this sort of dangling, very delicate kind of branch coming down, uh, it just gives the tree such a, such a relax, especially when, when you're dealing with, with um, the seizures. Uh, I remember at the National Arboretum um, talking um, talking to the curator, and um, 
uh, and we were, they have a huge, really magnificent uh, Salkova, which I'm sure you're, you're aware of it uh, or, or, you know, familiar with it. And sure. Tom, he asked my opinion and we were looking at it and I, and I saw in, in part of the canopy, one branch that kind of all of a sudden just broke out of the structure of it. And you would think, yeah, but did that really fit into this hand? Somehow it did. And it gave the tree such a special quality. I said, you know what, uh, uh, Michael, that's his name. He said, whatever you do, please do not cut that branch. Because <laughs> he said that such a special quality. Obviously the tree is, uh, you know, the structure is, is quite amazing, but that touch, was to me, it kind of the, almost defined the tree in, in it, wow. you know. Uh, so I guess part of it is like, it's not only the big things, but it's also those small nuances that, that kind of uh, give a tree that, that sort of special quality, if you will. Yeah, like an independent, independent, unique spirit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm always, I mean, I think to, to a degree, I guess we are all, looking for that to to give that to our trees but um but i think part of the message is that we're kind of in that road about like oh the the you know the rules say anything growing down you got to cut it off or wire it up or whatnot not so fast just you know that's why i tell people to think a little bit about you know uh, like, for example, when you have a ma- maple and you have the three, right? You were always cutting to two. I said, but people tend to cut the middle one right off the bat. But I said, no, not necessarily. Think about, you know, think about your angle. Think about, like, the direction that you want to go. Think about, uh, you know, just in general, what are you doing? What are you trying to achieve? Because it's not always true that you need to take out the middle one. Sometimes it's the right or the left and you leave that middle one. So, you know, more often than not, it's that middle one. Sure, it's the, it's the strongest one that you want to kind of cut off, but not all the time. In the same manner, anything that grows down, you know, not necessarily that that is that could have some value into your design. Right. You know. I, I, I find the longer that I do bonsai, the more of a sucker I am for a special unique branch. I mean, I think more than any other characteristic in bonsai, a special branch uh, has become almost a necessity for me to acquire a piece of material because, you know, the the fundamental form, after you do it so many times, loses its magic. When you when you know you can do it, when you have done it enough that it feels uh, like a possibility every time. It's almost like that's your graduation to now what what yeah. do you do outside of that? That's like the discipline. That's the rigor that you go through to be able to make bonsai. But then it's like, okay, so how do you make something special? Now that we've made something that conforms, how do you make something that that still has that merit and aesthetic quality, but it's but it out, is outside of that box now. Yeah. And and it sounds to me like that's kind of where you're starting to really tap into new design opportunities in deciduous, and that's that's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to kind of push in in, in different directions, explore. Uh, I may most likely will fall, fall flat on my face a couple of times, but uh, but it's that just that one time that can show me uh, a new way of uh, of uh, you know of expressing uh, you know that the sages model basically. 
Um, so it's all fun. And, and you know what? I, I do always say that uh, I have a few trees. For example, it's a small salcova, classic uh, broom style. I do enjoy having those in the garden because they require a, a rigor it, it, a discipline that that it kind of uh, it kind of keeps me keeps me honest in a way. It's like you know, it, it's not a creative. Uh, it is not requiring any creativity from my part, but it's requiring a discipline to to really pull pull that design off. And I enjoy that rigor. That sometimes not creative at all, but it's just that rigor that I enjoy that discipline as much as like you know, anything else that may be a little more free form, a little more creative. I have one, one elm that, um, that it was, uh, was given to me, um, you know, by a practitioner and, uh, as a gift and I, uh, it's an American elm and I decided to kind of just, just tilt it towards the, the, the one side and I said, let me, let me, let me explore, let me kind of uh, push that design a little bit farther and see what I can get. And I'm doing it in a way where all the branches on the right-hand side are really kind of going down, almost touching the, I have it on a slab, almost touching the slab where the cool. left-hand side is really short, almost indicating that the tree is being pushed by some unseen forces from, from the left and growing freely to the right. And I'm really kind of pushing that and seeing, I may go too far and people may be like, whoa, you went too far, man, this doesn't work. That's fine. As you know, this is just about exploring. Uh, you certainly, I think, I mean, what you talked about, you finding that unique quality. I mean, it's very obvious, very clear in the work that uh, that you're doing, um, you know, at Mirai. I mean, it's like, it's very obvious. It's very obvious. Appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, I, I and I, it was it was fascinating talking with with Andrew, you know, over two podcasts, and I look forward to more podcasts with him. Yeah, because I think originally he 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 was really like you know the deciduous kind of this traditional model, and even as he's gotten his hands dirty and his feet wet, it seemed to me he was even wondering what can what can the deciduous model, what else can the deciduous model open the door to. And and I think that's a I think that's a valid question. It's an unexplored opportunity. Sure, sure. I mean, it gets to a point where, like you said, you know, you you know, you can do it right, right? I mean, you well, the the you know, informal upright, whatever uh, whatever the case may be, you know, you can do it well. But then, as artists, as creative people, and, and I'm not 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 that we need to get into it, but I I do think that that bonsai is an art form, not a craft. Mm-hmm. That's just my my opinion on that. But as artists, I think that there is that that curiosity, that necessity to push into different directions and see. Uh, I mean, case in point, right? Picasso, Picasso. You see his early drawings, and he could draw like a like a freaking angel. I mean, very realistic faces, what what not. And then all of a sudden, he's like, okay, okay, I know I can do this well. What else is there? And you know, and of course, with through his explorations, he came, he came uh, out oh, from the other side with cubism. So, you know, there is that, always that, that artistic necessity to kind of push those boundaries creatively and say, okay, what, what else can I do? Of course, you're dealing with, you know, this is the, the, the great challenge for us as bonsai artists that, 
you know, a painting is a painting, but you're dealing with a, a life entity, a life thing that that kind of uh, once again kind of gives it that 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 unique dimension to it. So, you know, it's really fascinating. It's really. I think we're all crazy, by the way. I think we're all absolutely insane. Insane. Totally. Because totally. We're we're chasing the impossible, Ryan. We're chasing something that you style a tree and in a week later, even hours later, it's already evolving, it's already changing. What yes. What are we chasing? What are we chasing? <laughs> but it's fascinating. <laughs> I do I, I, I ask myself that same question because it's like do do I seek control? And it's like, well, definitely there's a, everybody struggles with control and like how much that, you know, but, but it never, it doesn't feel like control. And I'm sure it's different for everybody. What is the mechanism, which is what makes an Eric Schrader so great at growing a tree from a cutting, you know, versus uh, a Sergio Kwan where you're really reconceptualizing the deciduous model versus, you know, whatever else is happening, Michael Hagedor and cutting the container at completely out of his composition. I mean, it's just like, yeah. but the, 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 the unifying factor is we are all nuts. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. There's no question. Wow. Well, I, I think we need to dig into, <laughs> dig into your impression of bone size and art form next time. Next time. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to explore that for sure. I absolutely think it's an art form versus craft. You have to have craft in order to have to, to, for, for art to, to flourish, for sure. Yeah. You have to have technique and craft. But I do argue that and, and it is a very gray area, right? And I know you had your discussion with, with Andrew about that. It's a very gray area and very hard to define for sure. But I do, I do believe it's an art form for sure. Um, beyond craft. Some folks, in the way they practice it, it is craft. But some folks, I'm going to put you as an example, some folks take it to a level that I said, there's no way, there's no way you can convince me that what you're doing is just me or craft. No way. You will not convince mm. me. I think what you, some folks, you, Michael, Hagedorn, uh, you know, a few others uh, are taking that to an art level in, in mm. my humble opinion. My humble. Well, that, that's very flattering. That's very flattering coming from you as somebody who definitely, I think, has an understanding of what, you know, what is art and what is design and what is craft. But um, Sergio, I got to let you go, man. Yeah. I got to get home to, to, to take care of my seven-year-old. I'm sure you've got things to do. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for the time. I, I, yeah. I, I just love this. No. I love talking to you. you. I glean so much from you every time. No, thank you. And likewise, thank you for having me again, man. Uh, it's always a pleasure and an honor to, to be with you. So, uh, and I will see you shortly at yes. the, uh, the Nationals. Yes, I can't wait. Let's, uh, let's be sure to sit down and have a talk. Absolutely, my friend. Okay, be well. Be well. Okay. Be, be well. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Sergio. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye, Ryan.